Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I am Darren, I'm your host, and today I've got a special guest, Dr. Douglas Baldwin. He's the author of Sue for the Home Cook, and he's put together the industry standard pasteurization table for Sue Cooking. Can't wait to get into the discussion with Dr. Baldwin. I'll be right back. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from fire and water. Hey all, it's Darren. I want to take a second to talk about Thermoworks and their Thermopen and Thermopop instant read thermometers. They are the industry standard and industry leading, most accurate, most durable, most dependable on the market. You'll find these in most professional kitchens. The Thermopen is accurate within a half a degree, under three second readout time, and is the most durable on the market. The Thermopop is a little bit more pocket friendly with a, about a five second read time, but still very reliable and dependable. Check out the Thermoworks products in the link below. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I am Darren. I am your host, of course, and I have a great guest again today. I love having guests like this on. This is uh, Mr. Douglas Baldwin. He is the author of Sous Vide for the Home Cook, actually one of the most uh, used reference guides I can say that I know of in, in my Facebook groups and, and people that uh, are using sous vide. So I'm very excited to have Douglas on. Thanks for being on Douglas Baldwin. Introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from and what you do. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm Dr. Douglas Baldwin. I have a sort of odd background. I have a PhD in applied mathematics where I looked at things like tsunami waves and Bose-Einstein condensates. Uh, but while I was getting my PhD, I ran across a uh, reference to sous vide cooking in a New York Times article uh, by Harold McGee, the great Harold McGee. And I thought, oh, I know a lot about cooking, but I've never heard of this sous vide thing. So I started looking around and ran on to this fantastic uh, forum, eGullet, that used to be really popular back in the day. And there's all kinds of interesting people on there, including Nathan Merivold and Chris Young and all kinds of other wonderful people. And I uh, just soaked it all up and just absolutely loved it. And then I started looking around the internet and thought, golly, the internet's wrong on a bunch of these things. I really have to correct the internet as almost all good internet stories begin. And so I wrote up my uh, practical guide to sous vide cooking, a uh, pretty detailed uh, web page. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that uh, the creators of the sous vide supreme, which was really the first sort of home sous vide unit, uh, contacted me and said, hey, we need a cookbook for our new appliance. Um, uh, any interest? And I said, oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, uh, luckily at that time, I had a, um, a fellowship for my PhD. So I basically took the summer off from my PhD and wrote my cookbook, sous vide for the home cook, and uh, then continued uh, working on my PhD, finished it up. Uh, it took quite a long time, uh, but finished my PhD, uh, started consulting a little bit with uh, Chris Young from uh, the co-author of Modernist Cuisine, and I had so much fun consulting with Chef Seps back at the time that I ended up uh, resigning from my postdoc and Shortly later, started working for Chef Steps. Worked for them for about five years. Uh, started there before Juul was a thing. 
Uh, I started a little bit before the first brainstorming session that became the Joule sous vide circulator. <clears throat> and I also worked with them on the uh, their sous vide courses. Um, uh, probably my favorite part was the map of sous vide cooking with a great designer there named uh, Rick Wallace. And um, after that, I'm, uh, after Chef Steps, I joined Breville, which uh, also has polyscience. And I've been working there for about two years. So that's the short who I am. <laughs> well, that's uh, it. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for uh, having me on. The, uh, like, hey, like I said, go as long as you want. And, you know, we can always, we're always going to go back deep dive into of that course. stuff. But that's a good 3,000 or 30,000 feet, uh, you know, overview. And it, it's really interesting, though, because I, I want to go back and dig into this because. Uh, like I told you off before we got on cameras, you know, talking to Chris Young and, and some other people, um, like even Kenji, you know, mm. a lot of people that are on the top tier of, you know, what we are doing here are people that didn't start out cooking, you know, they didn't start out in culinary school. And that was one of the things when I talked to Chris was, you know, when you guys did modernist cuisine, you know, people were kind of frowned about it, you know, because the chefs were like, well, this should be written by a chef instead of, you know, these guys or just a bunch mm -hmm. of scientists and, you know, you know, weirdos that just love to cook. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, it seems to me that the, the people that aren't really, you know, gone to culinary school are the ones that can look outside the box. They're not, steeped in the tradition of mm. you know french cooking and stuff like that you know talking to kenji he learned all of his stuff you know when he went working in a restaurant when he was in college and decided after he got his degree he was you know hey i want to do this for a living instead of being an architect you know yeah. and so he you know pursued that and um you know then he next thing you know he's right in the food lab you know so it's just interesting to me that um people like yourself who has a PhD in mathematics <laughs> is working in the, in the food industry. So, so when did you start getting interested in cooking? Was it when you were in school? Was it when you were mm. young? I mean, when, when did well, you, uh, let's, let's go back I and see when I know everybody to loves my, to eat. So yeah, yeah. I have to credit that to my mother. She uh, said, well, when you go off to college, I don't want you just, you know, eating junk food. You need to know how to cook. So uh, she took on herself to make sure that I knew how to cook before I went to college. And I really got at that time into more of these sort of, uh, uh, she grew up on a farm, so it was very much more farm sort of cooking, the kind of thing yeah. that you'd expect from the old pork chops uh, and steaks and yes, exactly, and, yeah. yeah, and never being afraid to use a can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, that's sort of what got me on that, and I, of course, uh, being uh, a bit of an engineer and a scientist, uh, where I went to undergraduate was a School of Mines, and so it's a very much a engineering school. And so I, of course, ran across the America's Test Kitchen. I mean, I think every engineer picks up a copy of the America's Test Kitchen and goes, oh, my goodness, this is great. This is a very engineering approach to food. Right. Um, and, uh, but it was really um, Harold McGee and the, um, on uh, uh, food and cooking, the serve, uh, where it really opened up the eye to me of, oh, I can apply science, the thing that is my day job that I love so much to this other thing I love. Of, And so I shift for me. I don't know why before I hadn't uh, heard of Harold McGee, haven't read it, why I didn't think 
of course, I'm a scientist. I should apply science to everything. But it was just one of those, oh, yeah, right. I can do this. And so I think that's where a lot of this comes from is just this uh, – how can we leverage information from one area into another? And uh, uh, really, that's what my day-to-day -day job is now, is I jump into a team at Breville. They might be working on an uh, oven or a toaster or an espresso machine, doesn't matter. And I just sort of ask, well, what's the chemistry and physics of this? How can we make the food result better? How can it be a better experience for the customer? And I just look at it very much from that, you know, the good old Feynman's lectures and physics kind of <laughs> what's the fundamental science of it and how does that apply to great food results? And I think just having that different perspective opens up a world of possibilities. Yeah. When I started cooking, I was younger. I, I started working in restaurants, you know, in my teens, I started washing dishes and worked my way into the kitchen. So I was always, you know, I didn't really have that analytical mind towards it it was more of this is how we put the food together to put it up on the thing to serve it to somebody it was later on in life where i started thinking well i want to know the whys i want to know the hows why does this work why do you do it this way and i think a lot of times culinary school misses that point with people mm. that go to culinary school it's just just do what i tell you here's how you do it you know it's not this is why this works this way. It's more of just, okay, I'm going to show you how to make an omelet. This is how you do it instead of, okay, why is the omelet being, you know, the way it is, you know, why, mm -hmm. why is it the emulsion, you know, better than, you know, any other form of making the omelet, you know, mm. things like that. Yeah. When I, when I started reading um, with um, Meathead Goldwyn stuff, mm. you know, yeah. a lot of the stuff on his website and a lot of barbecue guys don't like his site because he gets into the, true science mm. of it he doesn't like the myths and the traditional stuff that doesn't have any you know uh scientific background to it you know the people uh well you got to use mustard as a binder you got to do it this way and you know the beer can chicken is one of his favorite things to go off on but mm. yeah no, trying to understand the whys and hows and why things work is you know really caught on to me and that's that's you know i really found that i love to understand the whys because if you don't understand why something's working then you really don't know what you're doing right you're just yeah doing exactly. something that somebody showed you to do and that's not learning that's just copying somebody right <laughs> yeah no like uh, uh meathead's wonderful description of a barbecue stall about the evaporative cooling on the surface is just so much fun. And it's uh, something that I think about all the time. Even something like toasting a piece of bread. You go, well, you know, why would evaporative cooling matter so much for bread? And you think, well, it's still pretty wet, right? So you put in and start yeah. toasting. It takes quite a while for the surface to dry out. And you're using tons of energy to evaporate the air off the surface. And once it starts to dry out and desiccate, then you can finally get that Maillard browning reaction. But you don't want to get so hot that you get the burning. So it's right. a <laughs> wonderful balance. I think that comes up so much in grilling and barbecue, too, is what's the balance between getting rid of this water that we don't want, keeping the water we do want, uh, getting the flavor from the Maillard reaction, but let's not, you know, uh, carbonize it. it. Yeah. We don't want to dry it out. So, we're, yeah. you know, we take a bite of it and just, you know, so yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely been, like I said, if you don't understand what's going on, then you're just really just copying what somebody else did. You're not really putting it to use. Mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, um, I like some of the books where they, 
explain how the different, um, you know, spices and seasonings work together. You know, why, you know, mm. the different parts of your tongue that, you know, taste certain, you know, uh, seasonings and, and why they work that way and why these certain, uh, seasonings pair well together you know just like wine you know why why it tastes different why things are work together differently but um and i think a lot of people miss that you know they especially oh, yeah. in the bar in the barbecue side they just well i saw somebody rub mustard on his pork butt before he put it on there and you got to wait till it gets to 200 degrees and then take it off and that's it i just did what he did you know yeah <laughs> well, well why well you know why is the stall happen you know mm-hmm. you know yeah you know, well, it just does. No, there's a reason why. And if you don't understand why, because it's not always at 160 degrees, it may be at 150. Mm-hmm. It might be because that particular pig, you know, the muscles in that pig, he were, he was stronger than the other one that you did last week, you know, and they, the, the protein, uh, you know, strands were tighter packed or something like that. So if you don't understand a lot of that stuff, then you're just running blind and just copying what other people do. So, you were, I guess you got into the e-gullet thing when you were in college and you just started, uh, you know, following, following some of the other people on the, uh, cause this was the old bulletin board. Yeah. Um, yeah. Message so, boards. Right? Yeah. This was back when I was getting my, uh, PhD up at CU Boulder. And, uh, it's a little bit of a funny story of how I got into it and in that I was almost done with my first year of my PhD program and I had a traumatic brain injury and lost my memory for about four months. So I couldn't quite do the advanced mathematics, but since I wasn't spending 12 hours a day doing mathematics, I could look around and see some other things. (laughs) And that's when I ran across the gullet and, oh, I spent so many wonderful hours on it. Just the spirit of uh, uh, sort of creativity and the sort of... um, almost like the Mythbusters style of science of yeah. here's a question. Let's just see if we can investigate it and find something out on it. And uh, uh, of course, back then you didn't really have, well, you, you could get the poly science, uh, big circuit box circulator back then. <laughs> but of course I was a graduate student, so I couldn't afford that. So right. I had all kinds of little wires with PID controllers and uh, slow cookers and little aquarium air bubblers to circulate there. <laughs> uh, the first dinner party I had, uh, had some people over, some of my fellow graduate students, and I uh, just plunge my hand in to pull out the chicken breast from the water and the whole table goes, <gasps> look around, like, what? <laughs> it's like, oh, they are, bo- no, this isn't boiling water. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even still today, I mean, it's not, there's still a lot of people that don't understand or know what CV is, even though mm-hmm. it is quite popular. Now you can, you can buy a, a cheap circulator on Amazon for 30 bucks now, but, uh, yeah. uh yeah, they, they become a, a lot, a lot more people are catching on. And I think once the fog, and, and this is one of those cooking methods mm-hmm. where you can't just wing it, you know, you got to understand what's going on because you mm, can, exactly. I, I see some, especially in the Facebook groups that I run and that I'm in, you got somebody, well, I tried sous vide once and it just didn't work for me. And it's like, well, what did you do? And did you follow somebody's recipe or did mm-hmm. you just pick a time and temp in your brain? And it just didn't, you know, you didn't follow a process or understand how you have to take it out of the bag and, and pat it dry and then try to sear it. So that you don't, doesn't turn out soggy and ugly looking. <laughs> so, oh, and that's one of the main things that prompted me to write my guide and cookbook back in the day. Is uh, so I feel very strongly that everyone has the uh, right to safe, 
delicious food. And so I had seen so many things in the forums back then, yeah. websites <laughs> suggesting things that I thought, oh, that that sounds dangerous. That it still you know, goes depend, on. Yeah. Still goes on today. Oh, it does. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's surprising how often someone says, "Well, the Baldwin tables say this." It's like, well, yeah. Well, that's not. what that's at least that's what we have now. We have yeah. that to go throw it at people that go, "Hey, you dummy, you can't do that." Here's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I uh, in my sort of deep dive into the safety and science of sous vide, and uh, I always thought it's sort of funny at the end of my PhD. I had how many papers I had read on applied mathematics and how many papers I had read on food science. And I realized <laughs> that there's about 50 more food science ones. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, I have like 300 of this and 150 of this or 200 of this. It's like, oh, I guess that sort of explains my uh, interest these days. <laughs> but uh, so I started really getting into it and I saw some shocking things like uh, one paper had like 15 to 20% of the US and UK population is highly susceptible to foodborne illness. I thought, my goodness, that is not a small amount of people. Right. Uh, and so I thought, well, I someone needs to come up with some advice to that portion of the population to say, well, how can you have great food safely? And so that's really what got me to make my tables and get pretty deep into the areas of uh, uh, foodborne pathogens and food safety and all these things. And so that was really a big push on it. It's just I felt like, you know, everyone deserves good food. Now, how did you turn in, you know, having a PhD in, in advanced mm -hmm. mathematics into being a microbiologist? <laughs> uh, well, it uh, uh, turns out that uh, applied mathematics, which is a little different than pure mathematics, applied mathematics is really just how can we apply math to any problem? So applying math to the growth or destruction of pathogens is really not fundamentally different than the sort of math I would need to uh, look at nonlinear waves propagating through shallow water. Uh, really for both, I end up using the same sort of numerical computation for both. Uh, uh, it's, uh, actually, I think it's that book there, which is uh, spectral <laughs> methods. Uh, so what that is, is it uses things like Fourier transforms and uh, polynomials to solve differential equations. At the end of the day, how food heats is really a differential equation. It's just the old heat equation with different boundary conditions. And we can use really simple models for how do we see the growth or the destruction of pathogens? We can just add that into the model. So it's it's quite a bit of complicated uh, computer code, which is a little funny for when I first started at Breville. They said, "Oh, we're making this new HydroPro sous vide circulator, and you know we have an algorithm in there that uh, computes the cooking time." I go, "Oh, that's interesting. What's it from?" I said, "They said, oh, it's from the PolyScience toolbox." And I go, "Oh." Well, I wrote the formulas for my webpage, and then I shared the code with a guy who said he wanted to make an app out of it, who then made an app, who then sold it to PolyScience, and then they put it in the circulator. So my first job at Breville was looking at this sort of game of telephone of code back to the original code that I had written. Well, did you ever make any money off of it, or did he just make it? I hope you made money off of it. <laughs> no, but did you make I any did money not. off of it? <laughs> so there you go. Well, now you're making money from them. So, yeah, uh, exactly. So, so it it say, where's my back end. pay? Where's my back pay? Yeah. 
but I'm just so happy that I could look over and go, oh, nope, there's a few typos here. Let's get this fixed so that it's uh, actually right for everyone to use. So now, when you when you wrote your book or the mm-hmm. or the website and you put this all together, did you get anybody from like the you know microbiologist side or or mm, so yeah side? I. Uh, go, Hey, who are you to write this? You know, cause like, like Chris was a telling me bit. about yeah, a little his bit, podcast. But so I found the people in the food science and food safety community to be really warm and welcoming in particular, a guy named uh, Pete Snyder, who uh, was one of the sort of big, big guns in the field of food safety. Um, and I reached out to him and he was just so warm and friendly and he uh, reviewed the science on my webpage and let me know where he thought things could be improved and um, uh, just such a wonderful experience. Uh, I think he's retired now. I hope he's still alive. Um, <laughs> but he was, um, I think, in his 80s when I first reached out to him back in the uh, middle 2000s. So it's... Um, but no, I found people really warm and welcoming. There were a few people who said, well, I, I'm not going to review a web page. That's not a published <laughs> journal. Uh, but that was very few. Uh, most people were very warm and welcoming. And that, of course, led to my uh, sous vide review article for the International Journal of Gastronomy and Food Science, uh, which is available free on my website. Uh, and somewhat surprising to me that is more cited in academic journals so yeah i'm pulling up your website so people can know what we're talking about here so it's douglasbaldwin.com and yep. um i i have it tabbed to the sous vide section because that's where i send people and i go to all the time when i want to <laughs> you know get way deep into stuff that i wants to put me to sleep so yeah, yeah. this this is you know the everyday ordinary cook when they look at this, the, their eyes kind of cross. So what I normally do is I try to just, which you have it all tabbed really well. So I, I just send them to a specific area and say, this is what you need to look at. You don't yep. need to read everything in this because it can make you, uh, if you're not, you know, uh, scientifically trained, you, you will, you know, fall asleep pretty quickly or your eyes will cross, but to, yes. uh, the, the, there's plenty yeah, of even my non-technical that... summary is fairly <laughs> technical <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> but thank goodness a... there's so many other uh great people now oh yeah you can see a link right there to the excellent guide uh, dr snyder although i'm not sure if it still works um but yeah but there's, there's so many a... wonderful people like kenji lopez and chris young yeah. and everyone else who uh, makes it much more accessible well but it's still you these are these tables are what everybody really needs to understand. And one of the first things people don't understand is the thickness instead of the weight. I mean, we still get Mm. this today a lot, you know, I got a four pound this, you know, and I I need to, you know, it's like, well, how thick is it? You know, that's the the important thing because food cooks from the outside in and it really doesn't matter how, you know, how much it weighs. It could, if it's a cylinder and it's long and it's, you know, still only, you know, four inches, you know, around or, you know, their circumference. So it, 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 that's all it really matters. It doesn't matter how much it weighs. So that's the biggest part. I think people don't understand. And then you send them somewhere like this and you go, Hey, look, here's how it relates. And they go, Oh, okay. Now I understand. <laughs> and uh, yeah. because for some reason, you know, everything, everybody's always asked, you know, what, what, how much does it weigh? <laughs> and they're yeah, not used exactly. to going, how, how thick is it? Because that's the most important. Yeah, and it thing. really applies for just about any type of cooking, whether it's smoking or right. cooking in an oven. And uh, 
I'm a little lazy. I don't even look at my table as much as uh, uh, you might expect. <laughs> I use a little uh, short little uh, calculations in my head. I take the, say, thickness in inches. I square it, multiply it by 20 minutes per inch squared, and then I divide by the effective dimension. So um, steak is one-dimensional because the heat only comes from the top and bottom. A cylinder is two-dimensional because you can think of from the sides and the top coming in. And I guess if you actually had, were cooking a meatball, then it really would be three-dimensional, and so you divide by three or two, whatever the dimension is. Uh, or look at my, my tables, uh, which do a little more in the background than that simple calculation. But uh, for a lot of uh, barbecue and roasting and uh, even hamburgers on a grill, that comes mm -hmm. out pretty well. Uh, especially for the hamburgers, that's that's a favorite for me. It's just you can judge the thickness, square it, multiply it by twenty. It's a pretty good guess for how long it'll take your burger to cook through. Yeah, and definitely with you know ground meat, especially, it's a lot more important than a let's say a steak because the ground meat you, there's all kinds of pathogens that can get inside of that. Then you know pathogens on a steak are mostly on the exterior; they don't go deep into the meat ninety percent of the time. So um, exactly, yeah. It's more important on something that's ground. But another thing that you got you have on this that I know a lot of people understand, you know, they know that the Baldwin tables for pasteurization, mm -hmm. but you also have the heating, you know, uh the heating time ones, you know, in here. And I think oh, a yeah. lot of people kind of skip over that. They or they just kind of think they're the same thing, you know, pasteurization mm -hmm. and and heat through is not really the same thing you know <laughs> yeah so. that's one of the uh, most common emails that i get as a question because on some of the thicker uh items it is pasteurized before it is heated through at higher temperatures so i always yeah. get an email going well i think you have a mistake on your table so, um, actually no it's uh so if you are say doing it in a higher temperature water bath then it will actually be pasteurized, say, before it's heated all the way through because you only need to get the core to a certain temperature. But for thinner things, it uh, takes much longer, say, to pasteurize, especially at lower temperatures. Uh, so it's really the sort of complicated mix. And that's why I did the tables is there are just so many variables to keep track of. Um, now, do you do any updates to your website or anything at all on here? Or are you just kind of uh, just... Very rarely. <laughs> Uh, it, there's there's a ton of information and i always tell people you know don't try to take it all in at once you know yeah. just you know and you have the helpful videos in there as well to to kind of uh you know sparse in between there so people can if they don't want to sit there and try to read about all the different kinds of pathogens that are out there mm -hmm. <laughs> they could yeah. just watch a video and just just believe me there's a lot of pathogens okay? yeah exactly so, so yeah but i mean but the, i did the, the work so that, they don't have to it's uh, yeah so but well for the way. people that do want to know all that the information is there so yeah. that, that's really what i love about it and you can click through all these are click throughs uh, that you know if you're you don't want to have to read through the whole book to go okay i just want to know what I need to do on a, on a turkey breast, you know, I can go right here to turkey mm, breast, yeah, you, know? So, <laughs> you know, and there I go, or the, the perfect egg. Here's all about eggs. Yeah. So it's, it's really convenient and well put together. Now you said, so you said you put the website together before you, um, yeah, that was back in about 2008 is when I posted that. And it was about two years later that I did my cookbook in 2010, uh, which, uh, I was, uh, I was glad I was able to get it out then to, uh, because by that point, people were really starting to get into sous vide at home uh, and in restaurants to, to a larger extent. So I was happy that I could provide that information to people on what's good, safe times to cook food. 
Uh, and I really like to uh, differentiate between, say, if you're cooking uh, and you have a robust immune system and you just are cooking for flavor, that's going to be a little bit different than if you're cooking for uh, someone that you don't know, uh, you know, how resistant they are uh, sure. or not. Uh, so uh, I emailed to me about, uh, you know, my wife is pregnant, you know, what do mm -hmm. I do? And so uh, being able to point to the pasteurization table and say, well, this is how long I would do the chicken breast because that's going to reduce the risk of all kinds of things that your doctor's warning you about. But for the most part, you have a healthy, robust immune system. Uh, there's pretty little danger to most foods. Uh, if you buy from a good source and it's fresh, there's really just not that much worry. Um, if you get a good steak, right? you do a quick sear. That's why people have been able to have blue and rare steaks for, for you years, know, centuries. Yeah. yeah. Is that yeah, and even pork nowadays? People mm, yeah. still think of back in the seventies when you know, you had the whole oh you get trichinosis if you eat undercooked pork. Well, there hasn't been a case of trichinosis in the United States in like forever from yeah. pork, commercially raised pork. So people still I got to cook my pork all the way well done. It's like well I don't like my pork you know yeah. well done. You know I don't like it well, medium rare pork shoulder, either. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like it medium rare either. But no, yeah. like a pork pork tenderloin. Oh yeah. You know, like 140, you know, is perfect for me. You know, I don't like well, it. Well, a lot of it too is that the pork uh, in particular and chicken, they are very lean and very young compared yeah. to like the traditional recipes. So this is why I think it's such a mistake in many ways to say, well, I can just follow the way that my grandmother or grandfather used to do this because things have changed a lot since then. Um, my favorite example is on the whole chicken. Say you cook a whole chicken and you know it's cooked through, but you see that terrible looking red blood next to the bones. Yeah, but the bones, go, yeah. What's up with that? And it's because the chickens are so young now that their bone is not formed enough to prevent the hemi coming through the bone. So even if it's fully cooked through, it might be really dark red just because of how young the chicken is compared to the past. Um, right. And it's the same with uh, pork. They're getting mm -hmm. very large pigs to that size much faster than they ever did before. So at least for me, I don't can't say I really even enjoy most pork chops because they just taste too lean and too dry. And I'm much more in favor of things like pork shoulders and uh, oh, yeah. where Fat there's so flavor. much. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so true. It's, um, I always think it's funny when, you know, the old joke of, oh, this crocodile tastes like chicken. It's like, yeah, it's a lean meat. Yeah. All lean meats taste like chicken. <laughs> That's right. Because there's no flavor to it. You know? Exactly. Now, if you bite into a thigh, it tastes a lot different than the, the breast. So, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I'm a dark yeah. meat man myself. So Yeah, definitely. and uh, it's a really good point to make between the uh, what are the flavors from the sort of proteins and Maillard reaction. So, if you roast a pork chop, most of the flavor is coming from the browning of the outside. It's that Maillard reaction. That's where right. so much flavor is from. And then you have the fat, and that's the sort of species characteristics. The mm -hmm. fat from lamb just tastes a lot different than the fat from a cow. And so 
you just have yeah. to think of these two components. And that's, I think, why so many people, including myself, love barbecue because it tends to use the fattier meats with more connective tissue. And it's that. Oh, yeah. Well, the, uh, the working muscles yeah. that need to be broken down. Yes, it's that yes. collagen and gelatin that, that forms when you're breaking down these hardworking muscles, you know, and instead of a, a tenderloin that's very lean, doesn't really have a whole lot of flavor to it. The only yeah. thing it has is that it's not tough, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a, you know, it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor. So I'd rather have a ribeye or, you know, or even, you know, I, I love to get uh, a London broil, you know, even mm. though it's, it's still kind of lean, but it, because it's a working muscle and it's kind of tough, you know, if you cook it sous vide for, you know, 36 hours or 48 hours, and then you sear it, it, it tastes awesome you know my wife yeah. actually loves that but you know more than a sirloin you know she oh yeah when are you gonna make me some more you know that you know, you know they call it london broil at the store but you all know it's uh top round so yeah. what normally they sell is london broil is top round but those hard-working muscles uh even you know i like top sirloin because it can be a little tougher than than some of the other steaks but if you cook it sous vide long enough and it, it's nice and tender and it's just the since it's a working harder working muscle, it's got more flavor to it. It's got more of that connective tissue and, and uh, collagen that's getting broken down and turned yeah. into gelatin and it makes it more juicy. So, yeah. And it's, uh, that's the, one of the main powers of sous vide cooking and uh, you know, something that was really long known to and barbecue is this idea that you can break these, uh, the tough, connective tissues, mostly collagen, down at different temperatures. Uh, but there is a lower limit. That's why I don't really recommend doing sous vide below, say, 55 degrees Celsius, because uh, different studies have looked at different things, but somewhere around 53 or so degrees Celsius. Um, um, sorry, I should probably do Fahrenheit and Celsius. So I usually don't recommend below 103 degrees Fahrenheit or 55 degrees Celsius, because below that temperature, uh, you don't get the same breakdown of collagen into right. gelatin. So you could do it below that temperature for a very long time, and it's not going to tenderize. But really above about 130 degrees Fahrenheit, between 140, that's sort of the you know one nice band where you really can break down the connective tissue to make it much more tender. And uh, at that point, you also don't have a lot of squeezing out of the juices of the muscle uh, fibers. So I always think three different sort of main uh, proteins when you're cooking meat sous vide, especially the tougher ones. You have the connective tissue, that's the collagen that we're trying to break down to something like gelatin to make it more tender. Although some muscles have a lot of elastin as well, and elastin doesn't break down right. even with quite a bit of heat. Um, if People have ever uh, pressure cooked things and gone, well, how is that still tough? Uh, that's the elastin. <laughs> yeah, it's silver skin and that's yeah, the connective yeah, exactly. tissue. That, yeah. It's like tendons. They don't really, they're not meant to break down. They're exactly they're meant to be right. Like car, car, like cartilage. It's not going to really break down yeah. on it. You know, it's going to be so. Exactly. And then we also have the muscle fibers, and they're sort of the ones that make dramatic changes. So once you get too high of a temperature, they sort of. Squeeze down this way Contract, and redistribute yeah. the juices, and then at a higher temperature they squeeze this way, and then that really pushes out a lot of the liquid. And so by cooking that lower temperature, like one thirty, one forty for the sous vide, you don't get the muscle fibers squeezing out all the juices. Yeah, that is one thing I think a lot of people still don't understand. That mm. even the people have been you know cooking sous vide for a while, and I have to explain that to people. Uh, 
you know, because my, my Facebook groups and stuff, I, I deal with a lot of the guys coming from barbecue into sous vide and some of the sous vide mm-hmm. guys come in and doing some barbecue. So yeah. that's one of the things they don't understand that, okay, well, well if I cook it at 150 degrees mm-hmm. instead of, you know, 156 degrees, why is it better to do 150 for maybe a few more hours instead of doing it at a higher temperature? And well, and I mm-hmm. try to explain because those protein cells are, are contracting more and they're pushing more water out yep. the higher temperature you go. So if you keep it at 150, you're going to have it more moist, even though you're going two or three more hours or even four, four or five or 10 more hours because yeah. they're not contracting as much. You know, when the temperature goes up, you know, four or five more degrees, you're pushing out more moisture, even though you're going to be in the, the, the bath longer, you're yeah. still pushing out more moisture for a shorter time. So it's going to be drier. So, yeah. And I think getting their head wrapped around that part, because they just think of evaporation, I think is what they think. And you say, well, there's no evaporation. You're in a bag. So yeah. you're not evaporating. You're just pushing the, the, you know, the temperature is what's pushing the moisture out of the protein cells. So you got to yeah. think of it instead of evaporating because, air you're not doing that in there so and so once they get that they go oh yeah that's that's you know what i'm what i was thinking so it's uh, exactly well i think it surprises a lot of people when they do sous vide cooking especially for longer times and higher temperatures it's just how much liquid is in the bag right you know there's something wrong no, it's, that's how much always comes out. You just don't notice because it's evaporated in your oven right. or in your smoker. It's, it still comes out. It's the same sort of process, except you get a little, there is that sort of um, diffusion difference. So uh, if you say uh, put plain water in the bag or no water in the bag, you'll actually lose more water uh, from the food if you cook in water within the bag because you have that uh, force saying, oh, I'm a little more salty in here. I'm going to push water and salt out to that sort of osmotic diffusion of mass from within to out. Um, sure. Now you just confused them even more. <laughs> now you got diffusion in, but no, I'm kidding. No, but I mean, hey, there's all this stuff that people don't know that, you know, yeah. not that they need to know it, but if they can no, have no. an idea of what what's going on when they're cooking, that's what I like to get, I get into is so you, you got to know what's going on and why things happen. Why is it better to cook at 150 than 160, mm-hmm. you know, when you're trying to do a low and slow and, and break down a protein, you know, how, how is it that, um, you know, you don't have, you know, moisture in the bag and, you know, so you got to understand what's going on in there. And, um, that's what I really love about it. Hey, all I want to introduce you to a company I just started working with fresh Jack's organic spices out of Jacksonville, Florida. They're a small family run company. That's fast growing. I've tried a bunch of their different seasoning blends and spices, and I can tell you they are all fresh all organic none of them contain artificial flavors or sweeteners none of them have anti-caking agents or preservatives they all taste like they were just made for you yesterday check them out guys they're on amazon in the link below they have different sample packs different blends like i said they also have the individual seasonings and spices as well fresh jacks organic spices check them out guys i love them so let's talk about um other besides sous vide, what other kind of cooking methods do you get involved in or do? Oh, I try and do just about everything I can. <laughs> so yeah, cause uh, you're known for sous vide, but I, do you do anything else as far as professionally wise? Have you got into, um, I know that you do a lot of stuff for Breville now that's 
doesn't have to do with sous vide. So, yeah, so it's uh, really been fun for me the last few years working at Breville because they make all kinds of different appliances from espresso machines to toasters to you know uh, food processors. So I get to work and answer a lot of questions on a whole bunch of different subjects. Um, uh, even before I started at Breville, I was pretty obsessed with uh, coffee and espresso. Um, uh, and I'm a little obsessed with the measurement. I don't think people would be surprised about that. So I have a little <laughs> reproctometer and I check uh, the coffee that I make to see how much uh, dissolved solids have come out of the coffee and measure the extraction yield to see if it's as good as it can possibly be. Uh, because really, once you get into the science, you can apply it to almost anything. Um, and there's a, a fantastic depth of geekiness in the coffee world, <laughs> which I resonate with quite a bit. Um, I do love uh, smoking food as well. I have one of those uh, carbecue uh, stick burners, and I was so happy. I, yeah, I think happy when one of the cherry trees in my uh, yard died, and I cut it up to <laughs> feed my smoker. It's. Uh, I feel like it has a better life uh, smoking my meat than it did. <laughs> Producing <before>. cherries. <laughs> yeah, it never really made many cherries, but it sure has made some delicious smoked meat. Seems like you guys, um, all the modernist cuisine guys mm -hmm. got one of those Caribbean because uh, I know Chris has one. I think you said Nathan's has one. Mm -hmm. uh, does uh, Grant have one too? Uh, I don't know. It, it really was Chris that convinced <laughs> me to get it. Uh, yeah. He was uh, showing me some videos of the results. And I went, oh my goodness, that looks amazing. <laughs> well, it's a scientific it. smoker for sure because you yeah. know the smoke going through the coals to get rid of all the volatiles and stuff. I'm actually going to have Bill on my podcast. Oh, so I've, great. I've got, a, I've got a hold of Bill and I'm going to have him on because I've talked about this with, with Meathead you know, mm. years ago. Meathead loves that smoker. Yeah. And uh, I have a friend of mine that has it too. And, um, you know, so I've heard a lot about it and I'm going to see if I can, you know, get some kind of, you know, discount from bill to get me one yeah, yeah. because I've got about six cookers on my, you know, patio right now and I could probably fit another one in there. So yeah, it's always funny with. how many of these devices we end up having. Uh, well, they're all different. All the ones I have are different. So yeah, yeah they all do different things or they have a certain need. I have a pellet grill that I like mm -hmm. to use for certain things. I have a hasty bake that has the adjustable charcoal, uh, basket that goes up and down. So I can kind of use that and I have a rotisserie for it. I got a Kamado grill that mm -hmm. I like to use for some different things. So yeah, it's just, I don't know. There's some people that collect, you know, rocks and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, other things that I collect grills and I like to play around with them, you know, and sous vide devices. And I've probably got, you know, 25 of those. I got the new Breville yeah. hydro pro plus. So, Oh yeah. You know, I've so got vacuum sealers now. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah. The one that sort of the excessive one I have is the uh, chamber vacuum sealer. That's, uh, uh, so over the top for home cooks, but it is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I got three of those and I got yep. regular vacuum sealers too. So, and that's another one I want. I want that new MX, um, uh, whatever it is, MX four, mm. whatever it is that, um, um, poly science has oh, yeah. the multi-vac or whatever it's called. That's got yeah, I think the one poly science. It's not sous vide that I've really become obsessed with over the last few years is the, uh, uh, their induction 
control freak. Burger. Yes, the control freak. Yeah, I'm looking. Uh, David said he's going to send one out to me to test out because they're going to. Oh, I think you'll love it. It's he's uh, going to. They're doing a push on it, I guess, over the summer. Mm. So he said they're going to try to do some more marketing and stuff, and he wants to come on the podcast and do some stuff with it as well. So that thing is amazing too. Yeah, there's so many new toys, and that's one other thing I want to talk oh, yeah. about. Over the last, I don't know. I would say the last 10 years, at least the technology that's been pushed into the cooking, not just the indoor, but outdoor mm -hmm. as well mm, is, is yeah. just amazing. You know, the, uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth on everything, all these different kinds of smokers and grills, all these different kinds of cookers. Um, what do you think is, is going to continue to come? I mean, I, I had this discussion with Chris as well. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, one of the things he talked about was the combustion um, yeah. thermometer that he's working on that measures the, you know, surface temperature and all that. I mean, it yeah, seems the like surface temperature question is so interesting because that's uh, such a sort of hidden aspect of cooking and ovens and smokers and uh, a bunch of other areas is what is the role of evaporative cooling? And if you know close to the surface temperature, then you know what the, uh, well, this comes up beautifully in the ANOVA precision oven is this idea of the wet bulb versus the dry bulb temperature. So if I think you have one of those ovens and you set it in the sous vide mode, it's really controlling the wet bulb temperature which is not exactly the surface temperature, but it's a good sort of analog to how much evaporative cooling you're getting from the food. So if you have a lower humidity, you have a higher air temperature, but the surface has more evaporation that cools it. And that's really going back to the stall and barbecue and why the Texas crutch works so well right. is it's <laughs> controlling how much evaporative cooling you have. And I think that's, uh, I'm hoping the more thermometers we get into outdoor cooking, especially for the longer cooks, the more information people have in terms of, well, I find that I really like the taste of it at this temperature range. Uh, and right. each person might find that they have a different one. <clears throat> Maybe I prefer 160 and uh, you prefer 150. I don't know. It's going to be a personal preference. And I think people are going to find the more they measure, the more repeatable they get exactly what they want um yeah although i think this is more of a short-term trend i think in the next 10 to 20 years people will be less knowing the number and more telling you know repeating a program uh, right. of something that they liked uh we used to talk about that a lot at chef steps the sort of engineering parameters versus the cook's parameters right um, do you want it medium rare user, yeah or medium do you want 130 user. degrees fahrenheit is there a difference i don't know <laughs> and i think yeah chris kind of hit on that with the pictures on the jewel app was mm, yeah you know instead of telling somebody okay you want it to be 130 you know here's the picture <laughs> yes. Here, choose from these pictures and then you pick i want it to look like that and then okay this is what it is yeah so which i think was very innovative and i don't think anybody else has ever come out with something like that they're still the only ones that yeah have that. Uh, and i don't know it all why came around because uh, uh my first project at chef steps was the uh, egg calculator for how do you get the exact texture of yolk and texture of white that you want i said well we should show videos people can just select the video for the egg that they want and that's became the sort of visual dumbness, <laughs> as we like to call it, of having videos showing the texture and the color of what you want. 
And I think it really is a powerful thing, especially in the beginning of a new technology. So, you know, smoke food has been around forever, but sous vide's new. And it's because it's new, it's different. And you feel like you need to say, well, you might not have an intuition on this. So here's what you will get. And then you will do it a few times and then you'll go, well, I just like it at 132. And you'll, you might just type in 132 next time right. uh, or whatever it might be. And I think it's the, how do we get you from sort of new to technology to having your own intuition and feel? So like on long cooks, uh, I'll do a long cook and then I'll just pull the meat out and squeeze it. And I know from the feel of the meat, if it's done or if it needs a few more hours and right. I can do that because I have cooked obviously for a very yeah, long time experience. on the sous vide and I have this intuition. And it's, uh, it's one of the things I found uh, working with people like uh, Heiko Antonowitz, one of the early German chefs that got really into sous vide cooking. Uh, the first time I uh, met and was in the kitchen with him, I saw him pull out the meat and squeeze it. And I go, Oh, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, experience, you know, cause that's, basically back before we even had, you know, mm -hmm. instant read thermometers, that's how the chefs would learn is to kind of poke the meat to kind of see how, what medium rare was, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, if, you know, if you can't do that, if you're brand new, but if you've yeah. been doing it for 10 years, you're working a steakhouse and you know what, a, you know, okay, well that's medium rare. I know what it feels like. You can feel the, the, the way the, the meat feels and the texture of it, you know, then you, you can do that with experience, but exactly. right off the bat, you're not going to be able to figure it out. <laughs> so, well, and that's what the beauty of the thermometers are from uh, the world oh, yeah. of smoking is, well, now, you know, <laughs> It's gone exactly. up to this temperature. We know it only takes this many hours at temperature until it's the right doneness. And it really sort of um, pulls back the curtain to really understand uh, how to get exactly what you want every time. And I think that's so much the, uh, the allure of sous vide cooking is I get the same, if I like it, I get the same thing every time. And right. now I can worry about other things. I don't have to worry about you know, is this roast done? I just know it's going to be. So, right. uh, and uh, that also allows for, uh, I mentioned this in our pre-chat, the uh, sort of biggest mistake I feel I made on my cookbook is not talking about batch cooking enough. Yeah. And that, oh, I'm just going to buy a bunch of chicken breasts. I'm going to pasteurize them all mm -hmm. individually bagged, chill them down and freeze them. And now, I just pop it in the bath to warm up for half an hour, 45 minutes before lunch. And it's perfect. Yeah, and I don't and have to worry it about it. it. Right. Yep. Exactly. And uh, same thing with things like barbecue. Uh, if I'm cooking for myself or a few people, I can't eat a whole brisket. <laughs> oh yeah. A whole pork, pork butt. I got, like I told <laughs> yeah. you, I, I've got like, you know, four or five things of pork, butt, you know, in vacuum sealed bags in my freezer, all I have to do is toss it in the CV just to heat it up to, you know, 140 degrees or so, or I like it for my yeah. mouth feel and take it out and boom, it's done. You know, it's awesome. You know, it's, it's yeah. amazing that uh, some of the things that we can do now with, with that, one of the things I love about mixing sous vide and barbecue, and I, mm. I write about this in, in the book I put out, and I tell people all the time, especially when I go into the barbecue groups and people go, oh, sous vide, it's stupid. You know, it's like, you know, there's things you can make by combining the two cooking methods that you can't make with those cooking methods on their own. You can't make a medium rare tender mm. um, brisket 
Yeah. Just by smoking it. You can't do it. You can't make a smoky brisket just by sous eating it. You know, so if you combine the two methods, you can produce food that you can't make with any other cooking method, you know, so it's, there's something things that you, you want to explore your palate. I want to try something totally different that I can't go to a restaurant and order. Well, like if they did it that way, they could, I guess, but, but still, I mean, it's the people never had before. I mean, if I can make a medium rare brisket or even a medium brisket and it still be smoky and juicy and tender and not, you know, the well done, you know, that they make, somebody's going to taste that and it's going to taste totally different than Aaron Franklin's bricks brisket. Cause people will go, well, is oh, it yeah. going to be better than this one? Or if I, it doesn't mean it's better. It's just different. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when, when does everything got to be better than, than something else? It just um, drives me crazy when people say that. And it's like, have you ever had medium rare beef ribs before? No. Well, okay. I'm not saying it's going to be better than anything else, but it's totally something different you never had before. Right. So, why don't you exactly. try it? So yeah, yeah, so, it brings a little more fun and um, play, experimentation and stuff. Yeah, yeah. trying new things. I, I think that's so much of it is just we just want to be a little more like kids playing in the kitchen, exactly, playing, uh, smoking things. You know, what happens if I do this? Well, okay, it didn't come out. That's yep. okay. I'll just eat up something else from the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Or you know, I'll try something else. I'll try something a little different next time, and maybe that'll come out better. But that's yeah. the fun part of cooking for me is is being able to create things, and then you know, going out to my family, going here, try this. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> and they either spit it out or they go, mm, "That's pretty good." So, and then <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I won't make the, that again. Or yeah, well, I'm going to make that again. So yeah, for every big uh, family barbecue, uh, I do. There, I always have like the. Um, uh, two warming trays with the what appears to be the same thing with a little thing of uh, drop one of these marbles into uh, the one that you liked the most of the two. <laughs> like, are you doing an A-B test on me? Maybe. Yes, I am. <laughs> Just let me know later what you prefer. It's they're not going to kill you. Don't but they're worry. They're a bit different. Just let me know what you prefer. It's not going to kill you. Don't worry. Yep. So. So what, uh, uh, what's in the future for you, Douglas? I mean, are you going to write another book? Or are you just, mm. uh, well, at the moment I'm, uh, doing a lot of, uh, patents at work on trying to push the technology here and there. Uh, my latest writing project was doing, uh, two chapters for a new CRC handbook on molecular gastronomy edited by Herb Teese. uh, uh, Admittedly, it's only two of many, many chapters. It's one of those projects <laughs> that started years ago, uh, and they asked me to do a few chapters. And I think it's grown to something like fifteen hundred pages now, with kind of like modernist cuisine, right? That's yeah. how Chris said modernist cuisine started out like it was going to be like maybe four or five chapters on CV, and it turned into, you know, five books. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's sort of uh, so makes me so happy to see in these. Uh, sort of blend of science and cooking projects that they start small and they just grow larger and larger. I think it shows that we're still in that early, fun, creative, let's just see what can happen uh, right. period. We're not in that, well, everything is known and this is what it will always be. And and I'm glad that we are all alive in this time when it's fun and we get to see what new things we can make. Um I, I hope eventually to write another cookbook, but I'm really waiting to find that there is a, a, a hole, a gap that needs uh, me to do the work. Uh, if other people fill the gap, I'm happy to have them fill the gap. That's the reason I wrote my sous vide cookbook, because I felt 
well, no one else is really being rigorous enough to make it safe and delicious for everyone. And so long as other people are doing that, I'm probably not going to write another uh, cookbook. But if we run thing, um, one in particular that is on the top of my mind is the uh, use of steam ovens in individual homes. Uh, I'm hoping that someone will find, you know, answer all the questions that are there. If not, then I might come in and write a book to answer those <laughs> questions. So, so going back to your original book, the original website oh, yeah. that you created, how long did it take you to do all that? I mean, all, all that experimentation and, you know, calculations and research and study and, and putting it all down. How long did it take you from start to finish to put all that together? Oh, it, it, it took uh, at least a year of pretty obsessive long hours <laughs> of investigation. I, um, the sort of initial version didn't take very long though. It really started at the very beginning as let's try and take the very best that's in the e-gullet. And that was the first kernel of my webpage. And then I just read more and more. As I said, I read, uh, basically I did a PhD on sous vide cooking while I was doing a PhD. <laughs> right. Well, that's on what it looks mathematics. like. I mean, it really is. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, covers, uh, uh I basically, at the time when I wrote it, read every available academic paper that was in existence on sous vide and anything even slightly related to sous vide cooking, uh, which in the end meant that I ended up reviewing for a lot of those journals I read. They would send me new papers, and I'd be able to read through them and go, Oh, uh, they cited a paper, and that wasn't in that paper. So I type in, uh, they made a mistake in their citation. It was actually this paper instead. <laughs> well, and the, the good thing is you went out and you found all that information. And you stuck it in one spot yeah. for everybody so that we didn't have to go and try to look it up and, and find it, So, which makes it really, really convenient. And like I said, I know everybody uses your, you know, I, I, I've got mine bookmarked mm -hmm. and I send it to people all the time, especially oh, when people ask these pasteurization tables and, mm. and, you know, how long, you know, I got a 10 pound roast. I mean, it's like, okay, here you go. Look at this chart. And that's from now on, it's the size of it. It's not the weight of it. Make sure you measure it and then, then look at this and here's all the information you need because do you get, um, reports on how much traffic goes to your site? Uh, I probably do, but I haven't looked at them. <laughs> say, it's got to be a lot because I know I send a lot yeah. of people there and a lot of people I know send people there. So yeah, um, no, I'm just, just glad that I can uh, provide this resource to people. And uh, if I ever do find that the science is outdated, I will update. But so far, I uh, haven't found any evidence that uh, I need to update the pasteurization tables, for example. Um, I haven't found any new research that says that it needs to be updated. I, uh, luckily, the uh, food pathogens don't really evolve <laughs> very quickly, and so it's uh, it doesn't really need to be updated. But um, it's, well, getting back to yeah. pasteurization, I want to touch oh, yeah. on this because I think one of the other things people tend to get overly concerned about mm. is thinking that they have to pasteurize every inch of the meat. And we kind of touched on it a little earlier yeah. that you said that just because it's pasteurized doesn't mean it's cooked all the way through, which means mm -hmm. it doesn't need to be pasteurized all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. So uh, it's good to sort of break it up into uh, sort of risk and hazard, if you will. So the risk might be uh, to the person, you know, it does someone have a high risk for foodborne illness or, 
or are you just the the average healthy mm-hmm. American who just loves red meat? Great. Okay. Well, then you're in this category, and uh, for that, it really depends on the food you're cooking. If you're cooking ground meat or poultry, you really do have to cook it all the way through because there can be pathogens inside. Uh, that said, if it is a really good fresh uh, piece of meat from someone that you uh, know, like uh, I would get a lot of beef at my family because my mother grew up on a farm. We would know the farmer and we would know exactly how that uh, side of beef came to be. And right. so, and we know our risk level. So we can cook at a very different level than, okay, I got this ground beef from the store. Well, right. We don't know much about that ground beef, so we better cook it all the way through and make sure it is fully pasteurized. Uh, then we have things like a steak. Uh, if it hasn't been uh, uh, mechanically tenderized, yeah. then it's basically intact inside. So there basically is no pathogens inside the food, and you really only need to sear the outside to make it safe. And so uh, this is why it's um, you sort of divide things into the I really want to get into all of it, or I just want some simple answers for what to do. Exactly. Yeah. And And I think that's where people tend to, they try to look at it at the 3000 foot mm -hmm. level sometimes. And then, but they put the kibosh on, well, everybody needs to look at it that way. Cause I'll see it in the, the Facebook groups, especially somebody Mm -hmm. will go, well, I want to cook it at a hundred and you know, 28 degrees and you know i only want to cook it for you know two hours and people go oh but it's not pasteurized you know all the way through and it's like well it doesn't need to be pasteurized all the way through yeah you don't understand that you know it, it you know maybe it won't be cooked all the way through but it doesn't need to be pasteurized all the way through if it's a you know a thick ribeye rib steak that's not blade mm-hmm. tenderized so and so i think people miss that point and you know oh, I, yeah. i'm always trying to correct people on that so yeah and there's a few uh, sort of good um general guidelines uh, for a lot of people one is um if you're trying to tenderize the meat make sure you use a high enough temperature if you're not trying to tenderize right. the meat and it's already tender say a uh, nice steak that you want then the thing to sort of say is well if i'm doing a lower temperature let me not do it for more than four to six hours uh, because after that amount of time at a low temperature, mm, some unpleasant things can happen. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, well, and, I think and everyone it, has, uh, even I've pushed things a little too far and <laughs> opened it up and gone, mm, no, I'm not going to eat that. <laughs> well, and not even that. If I put a filet in there for six hours, you know, at 132 oh, degrees, yeah. it turns into mush and you bite into it and you go, I did it with yeah. a lamb, leg of lamb. Once. Oh, was, yes, yes. <laughs> I did, I, 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 for some reason, I thought I needed to go like 18 hours on this yes. leg of lamb and it, and it uh, turned into like it just in my mouth but yes exactly so let's talk a little bit about that mm-hmm. too because i know that another thing that comes up people try to cook vegetables <laughs> the same oh, way they cook yes. proteins because um you know, you know vegetable proteins are a lot different than you know animal proteins <laughs> and they'll try to cook vegetables together with their steak and it comes out and they it's totally raw <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, it's just what proteins there are. And I think the one for cooking vegetables, you can think of the little cells, and between them is a pectic uh, polysaccharide. It's basically a pectic cement. So, pectin people use for jellies and things like that all the time. And uh, to be able to bite into them, you need to dissolve the pectin that holds the cells together. 
And that's really happens around 85 degrees Celsius. I'm sorry. I don't remember what that is in Fahrenheit. <laughs> usually about a 183 or 185 degrees is uh, yeah, what there I we usually go. do Fahrenheit. Yeah. yeah. So above that temperature, then uh, you break up, you don't burst the cells, uh, but you break up what's holding the cells together. And that makes it tender enough to eat. Where traditional microwave, steaming, boiling, not only do you break up what holds the cells together, but you actually explode the cells as well because you break down the, uh, well, the cells, uh, you burst them. And so that ends up with that sort of mushy vegetables that change color right. really quickly. It's because, well, you've broken up the cells. Where on the sous vide one at the higher temperatures, you can get really vibrant colors because you haven't broken up the cells. You've only dissolved what's holding the cells together enough that it's tender enough to eat. Uh, some things like beans, though, need pretty high temperatures, like 195 Fahrenheit to really tenderize them or they just don't break down enough, especially the uh, skins that they're enjoyable mm -hmm. to eat. Yeah. Some of my favorite things to, to cook sous vide are vegetables like asparagus and, mm. and stuff like that, where it's just, if you cook it to the perfect temperature, man, it's, it's still got that little bit of a crisp, mm -hmm. but it's, you can eat it. And it's like you said, the colors are there, the flavors there, because you're not boiling or steaming the flavor out of it. And carrots are another thing that just, mm. um, they're amazing. I don't see people, you know, really, that's one of the things they don't understand how, because they don't understand how to cook them in there because they yeah. try it. They try to cook it like they cook a, a steak and they yeah. fail and they go, man, I can't use it for that. Yeah. But once they figure it out, uh, I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to cook vegetables any other way because they just taste totally different. Oh, sometimes you get really wonderful, intense flavors that you can't get mm -hmm. in other ways because, when you boil in water, you really are leaching a lot of the volatile flavor compounds. A lot of the tastes and nutrients go into the water. Now, yeah. for some vegetables, that, you might want that. Maybe it's yeah. a little too strong and you have, uh, say, if you're doing cooking for kids, maybe they don't want the full taste of parsnips. That's okay. Maybe you want to boil it for them. <laughs> but you might want it. So it's uh, right. really it lets you choose. And I think it also lets uh, – it, it, it's a little bit like uh, going to slow motion in the sense that when you're cooking these lower temperatures, you just have a longer window where they're great. Right. If you boil for too long, well, yeah, forget mush. about it. Uh, but if you do the vegetable sous vide, then you have the pretty long window where they're really good. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but that's sort of the problem too, right? Sometimes you just need a quick side. Yeah. Sometimes you got to microwave stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. All right, Douglas, I really appreciate it. It's been great. And I'm sure I'll have you on again someday talking oh, about like some that, other yeah. things you're working on, but, um, um, we could probably sit here and talk for another three hours and go into oh, probably because <laughs> <laughs> this, this kind of stuff is fun for me. And, you know, I really, uh, I like talking to people like you that have the analytical background and, moved it into food and, and make you're, you're doing something you actually love. So you're not exactly. teaching, uh, you know, applied mathematics, but you're using, well, it. I actually really enjoyed that. Too. <laughs> Other people can teach applied mathematics. I, uh, always try and ask, uh, what is it that, uh, only I can do and, uh, or only a few people can do. And so I try and go there. And so, but yeah, it's been wonderful talking with you and I uh, hope we can do this again sometime. 
Definitely. And everybody just make sure you check out douglasbaldwin.com. You'll find a lot of information on sous vide in there and you can find his book. I think your book is still on Amazon. They can still find it. Sous vide. It is on Amazon. Uh, sometimes though it sells out on Amazon and I have a link to the, uh, uh, so you can buy it from the publisher on my webpage. If it's sold out on Amazon, now, never is there pay a lot- more than the 29 or 24, yeah. whatever the price is, never pay more than that. Um, sometimes it uh, sells out and used book places, Jack up right. the price. To read yeah, I've seen that. Now, is there a lot more information in the book than there's, there it's is in the different website? different information on the book. That's a great point. So the rest of the webpage only has about 12 recipes, and it's pretty technical. The cookbook, I uh, sort of distill out most of the technical parts and really focus more on um, what you need to cook at home and it has about 200 recipes. Uh, then I also have a scientific article that's linked on my webpage that is very technical and more for if you are a restaurant trying to get a, uh, uh, working with your health department and you yeah, need to HACCP, prove that it's safe. You know, stuff. It's more for that. So it's not really for the general reader. Uh, so that's sort of the three things that I have available right now. Well, definitely. So check out sous vide for the home cook on amazon check out douglasbaldwin.com and you'll learn more than you ever wanted to know about sous vide that's for sure so it's definitely good stuff and uh, i really appreciate you being on and thanks again yeah thank you well thanks again for joining us on the fire and water cooking podcast i want to thank dr douglas baldwin for being on make sure you check out douglasbaldwin.com you can check out all the information he has on there of course, a link to his book, Sous Vide for the Home Cook. And make sure you follow the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast, both anywhere you get your audio podcasts and on our YouTube channel, Fire and Water Cooking. Make sure you check out the Facebook page and group, Fire and Water Cooking. And I'll see you again on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. <laughs>